0: I want to share a quick comment with you before we get into today's conversation. There's a moment in the very beginning where Corinne talks about being a part of a 2,500-year heritage. And I make the wisecrack about, are you referring to being an acupuncturist or a Jew? This was two days before the brutal events of October 7th. And I'm glad we had the conversation then because I'm pretty sure We would not have been able to have the same conversation after what happened that day. I considered not publishing this conversation because it's painful to think about how the world has shattered and continues to burn. In this conversation, Corinne invites us into an exploration of the five visceral spirits and how the symphony of hormones, neurotransmitters, and our neurology, especially that of the vagus nerve are all involved with our sense of belonging, our capacity for connection and compassion, our feeling of being emotionally regulated. And I don't know anyone right now that feels emotionally stable. Our sense of belonging at this time, more divisive and connective, and yet there is something optimistic in what you're about to hear. But you'll need to set the whirlwind of your mind to the side and listen instead with your heart. In some ways, this is the perfect time to publish this conversation. I just expected that when I hit the publish button, I'd feel joy. But the truth is, I'm heartbroken.
1: Ask yourself, what did the Chinese scholars and healers said about change? And they said, there are three ways we react to change. One is by heat. The second is by cold. And the third is by damp, right? That's the only option. And then if we look at it in a neurological lens, we can say heat is urgency, cold is freeze. And dump can be either confusion, negotiation, dampening a situation.
0: I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. The kidney is not impulsive, its deep fire within water leans toward conservation. Preservation in the way that a taproot goes into the dark earth and anchors a sequoia. The energy of the kidney anchors, it goes in and down. It is the watery unconscious, the low places that we all share. It has the imprint of memory and at the same time, fluid. The water of the kidney is connective, but its fire is singular, focused on self. The kidney doesn't try to preserve, it is preservation, the deepest instinct for being, and while it is associated with survival, that's secondary to its constant thrum of being. It's a source of knowledge more felt than known, seat of the juror, anchored in the dark, wet, fluid, unconscious, unlike the fire of the heart, which radiates out, the deep, Fluidic will strengthens in the stillness and pressure of the depths. The kidney is not impulsive. That is more the realm of fire. The kidney gains its strength from deep currents, the underworld of water that holds all memory, the inky, deep black that remembers without the confines of personality. It is the will to be, the part that does not back out because. It's already dug in. It's the part so stable that it can respond with saying, Are you okay? After being on the receiving end of someone's angry tirade. It's the capacity that in the midst of grief makes breakfast for the children. It commands attention not with volume, but depth. Gives strength without aggression. It's sensual without effort. The energy of the kidney is one of abiding. It draws on the low places toward which water has a natural affinity. It's connective without trying. Because water, it's in everything that's alive. And so it knows the experience of living in all its forms and flourishes. The kidney is stable. You can lean on it when distracted or anxious. It's counsel comes from stillness. It won't tell you much about the future, but it's a good advisor for the present. Its strength is not of outward aggression, but rather inward resolve. Water's relentless yielding is its unstoppable strength. Deep water is the prayer that brings fortitude in the moments of explosive trouble that leave you at the mercy of the whirlwind. The stillness of water is patient. It will help to tame the troubles born of trauma, and it dials down reactivity, alchemical, not in that it burns away, but dissolves and includes. It's the wisdom that keeps intelligence in check. Kidney water contains the gravity of being. It knows without bright awareness. Don't lean on it for clever words. That's the domain of the fiery heart. The watery kidney? Lean on it for the fortitude of the jur. Odd, isn't it, that us humans, along with some sea mammals, have the most evolved brains, and yet the nervous system as we know it is all but invisible to the lenses and prisms of Chinese medicine. The brain, it's a curious organ. Part of the Sea and the story pretty much stops there. And yet, from modern medicine and biology, we know our brains and nervous systems are a true wonder of nature. And the attention given lately to the wandering vagus nerve, especially through the lens of the polyvagal theory, it helps us to better understand not just our biology, but the way we relate to each other as profoundly social creatures. In this conversation with Corinne Ketter, we stroll through the terrain of the polyvagal and along the way, consider how the spirit of the five yin viscera might be felt manifestations of the interplay of nervous and hormonal systems. We'll get into all of this and more in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members, All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast.
2: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Maywe Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
0: And be sure to mention the code GEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Katrin Ketter, welcome to Geological.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you.
0: I'm happy to have you here with me. I heard that uh, you know a little bit about polyvagal.
1: I keep studying all the time, so...
0: Uh... <laughs> I like, that's a great response. I keep studying, you know, it's like, I understand you know something about acupuncture. Well, I'm a student of it.
1: I am. I, I am a student of acupuncture for the last 20 years. You know, it's been, uh, we have a heritage of like at least 200, 2,500 years, right?
0: Are you talking about being Jewish or being an acupuncturist?
1: Both. I think, I mean, acupuncture has such a beautiful, vast history that for me, it's just keep on learning and knowing that this beautiful sea of information, I know it's just a small fraction of it. And it just keeps, you know, keep on studying, keep on learning.
0: There's actually something lovely about that, isn't there?
1: Oh, I love it. It's just feeling like I have such a big ocean to swim in, and we can, you know, take streams whenever we change with it, which, really connects us to this whole idea of the polyvagal theory and about flexibility. I think Chinese medicine is such an amazing profession to practice.
0: I agree. I I think it's amazing. So you've been at it for about 20 years. How did you come to it?
1: Oh, I studied actually Japanese and Buddhism. And then I traveled to India to study in the library of the Dalai Lama where I didn't get to study much as I got extremely sick with pneumonia. And Kenzin, who's the doctor of the Dalai Lama, you know, the Tibetan doctor who gives you, it's not real sheep shit, but it looks like sheep shit. You know how
0: <laughs> the little pills,
1: <laughs> the little black pills. He, we tried to help me with that. I wasn't, I, I wasn't courageous enough to try the Indian antibiotics. You know, they're very colorful and you just don't know what you're getting. And then he said, just go see an acupuncturist and he might help you. And he did cupping and he had this very weird Mark Sebastian style where he literally burned leaves and stuff on my back and did cupping and bloodletting and I got better extremely fast. Like really, like in three days I was much better. And then I had this, you know, a moment of revelation which said, oh, this is what I was looking for. I started at art. I was a dancer and then I studied Buddhism and Japanese, but I I just didn't find myself and then, you know, it just everything was there, the aesthetics, the beautiful heritage being in a community of something that is bigger than me that has like vast history, which uh, literally the day after I just decided to go back to Israel and study Chinese medicine. It was just in a moment.
0: Just like that. This was it. This is it. This is the thing I was actually looking for. I went to do some research. I did my research. In very unexpected ways, I found exactly what I was looking for.
1: Like my pole decided for me. It's like my visceral, you know, feeling of home. This is where I'll be home.
0: I love it. My. Poe decided for me. I've had a handful of times in my life where I've heard something or somebody suggested something, something happened. And I was like, Yeah, right. I'm doing that. There was no thinking. There was absolutely no cognition. It was more of a declaration. So that's the paw. I'd never thought about that as the paw making that decision. That's huh. That's something to chew on.
1: Po as this combination of taking in from the lung and letting go through the colon, the large intestine. It has everything to do with this. I am willing to accept breath, information, life in me to decide through other mechanisms what I am, who I am, and then to release it until it becomes me. So I think... The beginning of everything is breath, right? This is where we start.
0: This is where we start. I mean, it is, you're born. And until you take that first breath, you're not really born.
1: Exactly. And you know, many times I think how amazingly genius, um, the meridian constellation is as again, if we think about the pole and we think about the lung, it starts in CV-12, right? It starts in the stomach, in this meeting point of acceptance of whatever we're giving, we're being given from the world, from people, from whatever to become us. So for me, this is, you know, this is where we start by first of all, being open to accept and then deciding who I am.
0: First open to accept and then decide who I am. Okay. I suspect most of us, I know for myself, I've had that reversed for much of my life. I think I know who I am and now I'm looking to see what's acceptable.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's, what is, who decides what's acceptable for you?
0: Oh, okay. Now, now you're getting all Buddhist on us. I mean, that's a great question.
1: If we'll, you know, start our journey towards the polyvagal theory, this is exactly where it starts. We, I mean, we all have this, How would I say it's like an alternative resume. It's not what we did in our life, but actually all the information, all the knowledge we were born with from what my mother taught me about who I am when I was a fittest, about the transgenerational information that is in me. And also from the meeting of, you know, the above, the Tian area of why I was chosen to be me. And then we are actually born not like a tabula rasa which we always say we're born pure we're not born pure we're born already with information, history, biases of generations way way before us. And then we only start, you know, building up this uh, library of experiments of expectations of uh, experience, all those exits, And from there, we think that we can decide what, what is acceptable.
0: But that's not built on an empty foundation. That's built on everything that we come in with.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, Chinese medicine already said it. They called it Taijiao, right? In Chinese medicine, there is the whole story of the Taijiao, the fetal education. They they wrote beautiful beautiful essays about the education we are taught when we're in our mother's womb.
0: Okay. I am not familiar with the Jiao. Oh, we
1: uh, we can talk for hours about the taijiu. I love it. It's such an amazing we can call it today epigenetics, right?
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Yeah, that would be a proper way to say Embryos,
0: isn't epigenetics the influence of the outside on, like the genetic blueprint that we have after being born? No, so there, there's an epigenetic component pre-heaven, so to speak.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I can give you a really funny small example. When when mothers, they took this group of uh, pregnant women and they divided them to two groups, and one were given. To drink carrot juice every single day of their pregnancy. Just carrot juice, right? And then the other part, the other group, just no drinking, like whatever they want to do. And then after the baby were the babies were born, they looked at the reaction while being given carrot juice. And the babies who've already been given on every day, on a daily basis, carrot juice did not react to it in a way of oh, wow. Well, they reacted it in familiarity. It was just a familiar taste for them via, via the via pregnancy, and that's just a small, small. You know, it's a small story that we can talk about stress and sugar the and calories, the amount of calories the mother ingests actually programs the baby to the world they'll come. They'll be born to. Let's say the mother in Israel, I'm sure it's in the States, the same. They tell women not to gain weight during their birth, their pregnancies. Women are extremely strict with themselves and they're extremely proud if they only gained nine, 10 kilos in a pregnancy and they kept slim and, you know, they were tight. Everything was tight. And the problem is that these babies are actually hardwired for a world of scarcity, so when they will ingest the world in, they have a much bigger chance of becoming obese, of becoming insulin resistant, of becoming children that have a problem with um, choosing when to stop eating, like their leptin gets crazy. And that's from the story their mother told them without words about the world they'll be born to.
0: That is profound.
1: Profound. And it's also, I think, hopeful because the more we can give women this pregnancy as a time in their lives that we can give them this uh, approval to be flexible with themselves, generous. To tell them, if you want your child to be generous, teach yourselves generosity. If you want your child to have a musical, to love music, just play more music around. And it gives, you know, people, women, permission to change and to be, you know, people are not extremely generous with themselves. So I always tell my patients, you want your baby to be a generous, artsy child? Just, you know, explore art, be generous with yourself, have many tastes, Uh, listen to different languages, be, you know, like this um, buffet of many, many ideas for your child. And not, you know, only think about what you're not allowed to eat, what you're not allowed to do, what you shouldn't, because then your baby will learn that life outside the womb is actually a place of restrictions. And not of flexibility of dance of play,
0: so when you're pregnant, bring more delight into your life
1: when you're alive, bring the more delight to your life, right <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, so, of course, sure, there's that, you know, it makes me think about, yeah, of course, people born to troublesome time born in a troublesome time, oh, yeah, right, the mother's been through a troublesome experience, and so. It's not just the early childhood post-heaven, it's that early childhood pre-heaven. It's that shentian.
1: Absolutely. A very, very uh, strong part of your life. It's this... Uh, yeah. And you're so helpless, right? You can't escape from the womb. And if you do escape, that and you escape too early, then you won't be born. But I often think about early birth and miscarriages as a conflict also of the shen of the the child.
0: Yeah, oops, sorry, no not this one.
1: Nope. Yeah.
0: I thought I wanted this. Mm. Nope.
1: Yeah, but oh this mother. Uh-oh.
0: Yeah, no not this one. Nope. Oh, man, that really I mean, I don't know about in Israel. I know here in the states there's often a lot of um admonitions that go with being pregnant. Like you were saying do this, don't do that. It it becomes something that is a medicalized experience more than a uh, spiritual unfolding, shall we say.
1: Absolutely. You're like guilty until proven otherwise, both of you.
0: Guilty until proven otherwise, that's right.
1: Yeah, you know, you have to be like Mary Poppins, perfect in every single way.
0: Yeah, but she did have a magic umbrella, so there was that.
1: Yeah, but we most of us don't feel like Mary Poppins. We don't have this. You know, I love the story of, you know how she has the, that bag that she takes out a lamp and everything is in that bag. I always look at this bag. It's this bag of resources that a person has in their in their, you know, internal core. Resilience is this uh capacity, right, to know what resources are needed right now, and to be available to get this lamp out of a bag, which sometimes you know it's it's this beautiful symbol of doing something impossible. We're having resources today when everyone scares us so much. How can you be courageous about living a life of pleasure, living, uh, being pregnant in a pleasurable, trusting, joyful? It's almost impossible. You have to go through so many examinations that each one of them is trying to find what's wrong instead of telling you what's beautifully right about you and about your baby.
0: I am just going to let that sink in for a second. All the messages we hear about what's wrong instead of what's right and beautiful. And and that's not just around your baby and pregnancy. That is... Often the message, it could be around diet or livelihood or, or how you have your relationships.
1: You know, even I think when we're taught Chinese medicine, we are often taught to look for what's wrong, to look for pathology. And let's say we take the pulse and our patient asks, what do you see? Not often enough. We tell them how beautiful their pulse is and only then tell them, but you know, your liver has this stringiness about it and I would want to soften it. But you know, your lung is amazing. It's just so beautiful, you know. It's been so long since I heard such a beautiful lung pulse. And you know how the body can change from an affirmation like this even if someone tells you that something needs some support or even change, but first we need to start with giving space to what's right.
0: I love it. That makes so much sense. People ask me the same thing. It's like, well, how bad is it? And how bad is it? They ask that. And, and often what I will tell them is, look, I'm not looking for good and bad. I'm looking for what's here. Like what's strong? What are your resources? And then share some resources. I I love the idea of sharing resources first. Here's the other thing. And I'll tell you a little bit of my story. I never wanted anything to do with medicine. I don't like, no, no. I wanted nothing to do with medicine. At least the medicine I grew up around was, you know, conventional Western medicine. I don't like being around sick people. I never liked it. And I was like, yeah, like be around sick people for a living? Like, why would I do that? You can't pay me enough.
1: By the way, I still don't like it. This is why I do mostly GYN.
0: Well, here's what I discovered. And, and I got this from Chinese medicine. And it makes all the difference. In Chinese medicine, like you were talking about, there are strengths. There is the jung. There's the upright. And it's always with us. It's never not with us. It's there from our first breath to our last breath. There's that jung chi. There's the part that's right. There's the part that's upright. And it's always there. And because we have, at least for me as a practitioner, because I have that sense and I can communicate with that part of my patient, I can see it. I can be attentive to it. I can be a witness. I can invite it. So I don't see sick people.
1: And also, I think you can call it. You can say it. You can uh, verbalize it. You can help it grow, inflate it. I think the most beautiful thing we can do is, you know, take the resources, even if they're very sparse, and teach our, pa- our patients to, you know, grow them, have more from that instead of less from that thing that... A lot of practitioners always talk about, you know... uh Cheechi or evil chi or sedation or stuff that you need to eliminate and i come from more of a supportive kind of a treatment which says let's grow the biggest tree we can from this resources so the shadow over the things that are bothersome will shade it it won't get any light it won't get any oxygen and it will die by itself it will sedate itself Instead of, you know, trying to eliminate or to disperse or to get rid of or to change, but rather to add, to grow. And I think the more we also as practitioners use this kind of language, we also are filled in this upright chi, which gives us more energy to keep on treating other people. Because if we talk about polyvagal, Theory, it has co-regulation so strongly embedded in it. The fact that we are all born being hardwired for connection and that we are, this uh, connection resonates not only from the patient towards me, but from me towards the patient. And this co-regulation keeps, I mean, the more we orient towards pathology, the less energy we'll have to treat other people at least in my opinion that you know i treat a lot of uh, medical doctors with their medical doctors and they're so drained god
0: because all they say is pathology and all they all they work with and us as acupuncturists too we often will adopt that model that idea i'm here to fix pathology
1: i'm here to fix you you're broken
0: yeah well here's something interesting about the word fix fix means to like Screw it down, nail it down, make it so it doesn't move. But really what we're looking to do is help people move even more, move beyond whatever restrictions that they have.
1: Wow, I never heard I, I never thought of it it's beautiful. It's just really, really be, it's exactly that. We want to help people stretch and uh, become flexible and become uh, curious and have a variety of options and a variety of possibilities, right?
0: Sounds good to me.
1: Yeah, I would rather live like that, probably.
0: <laughs> I would too. And I would rather work with patients that
1: way. For me, it's the only way. If not, I get depressed. When And, you know, in sometime, sometimes I fall into that trap. I find myself sometimes scaring my patients instead of supporting them, judging them instead of caring for them. I fall in that trap like anyone else. But... I have this barometer inside that if at the end of the day I'm drained, then something about my co-regulation was off. And I have to look at what triggered me. Why did I become uh, rigid? Why was I fixed on something? What happened? When did it happen? Who was, was it? outside the clinic, or maybe a patient triggered me. I'm being triggered like anyone else. Aren't you being triggered sometimes by a patient?
0: There are certainly days where I feel like I should be paying them. They will come in sometimes and and they'll say something. They'll tell me something about their life, and it will just go all the way through me. It's like, oh, I hadn't seen things that way. Let me give you an example real quick, because it, it, it was really potent for me, and, and I think it's germane to the conversation. I had a woman come in, I can't remember what she came in for, and in some ways it doesn't matter. What she was telling me about was her movement activities, right? We always ask people about what kind of movement you get, exercise, blah, 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 blah. And she was telling me about her garden and the time that she spends in her garden. And she wasn't telling me about the steps that she made. She wasn't telling me about the things she lifted or how she was working out this or that. Her time in her garden was about being in a timeless space of being in her garden. It was completely and utterly non-transactional. Most of us when we're doing some kind of exercise, well, I did these steps, I lifted these weights, I spent this time in the gym, blah, 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 blah. It's all transactional. Where's the joy? Where's the beauty? Where's the timelessness? Where's that moment of just being in ourselves and in the world? And that place where you'd want to be as a mother with a growing a child. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. I mean the way you explain it, I hear oxytocin, oxytocin, oxytocin. The hormone of forgetting oneself, which is the most important hormone for our ventral vagal tone. There is nothing more important than activating more and more oxytocin in our life.
3: Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
0: The hormone of forgetting oneself, the practice of forgetting oneself.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It is a practice. Uh, It's something that, you know, it's like undressing uh, the energy of action, of um, of doing, of uh, reaction, of uh, fight or flight, but more in the broader sense of being all the time attentive to react to something. And that is, you know, not forgetting. It's just keeping yourself alert all the time, which again, we live in this society that actually dictates us uh, to be awake all the time and alert. And even two Western mindfulness practices ask you to hold this attentiveness. That I, at least for me, this is too much. I don't want to notice everything sometimes. I want to not notice. Not because I forget, but because I feel safe enough to let the world do its thing and me to redraw from it in order to come back to it when I feel I want to, but that this Coming and going will be in a soft, uh, chosen way because I feel safe enough that the world will continue without me, that I am not the middle of the world, that not everything is around me and me, me, me this kind of behaviors.
0: Yes, it's wonderful to forget oneself. Now, we ostensibly came together today to talk a bit about polyvagal and. Uh, you know, I love how these conversations
1: we are talking about the polyvagal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean we will.
1: No, we already are, I think.
0: Well, I think so too. And again, I want I want to come back to something that you said very early in the conversation about uh the poor. And that it uh I can't remember the exact words that you used. It was something to the effect of like the poor decided. Is that what you said?
1: Exactly. The Po decided for me. Yeah, I did.
0: Po decided for you. I love how you say that. And look, when we talk about things like the the Shen and the Po and the Hun and the Yi and the Zhu and all that, it I find it slippery. I find it tricky. Because these are ancient Chinese ideas. We are modern people of the West. Like, so often I feel like when I talk about this, I actually have no idea what I'm talking about. Because how do I know what they were seeing as poor or jur? So I've always got that in the back of my mind. Do I have any sense of what I'm thinking about it? Is that how they thought about it? So I'm always a little skeptical. I always, I always wonder about that. And when I hear something, like I hear from you, oh, the poor decided for me, I go, oh, that's right. I think that's right. I can go investigate that. I don't know if it's right, but I can, it sounds right. And I can investigate it in my clinical work. So I've got, I've got like a foot to stand on now with that. Something, something to take and go see how that might work with other people as well.
1: I think that when I think of the Poe or any energy, I always think about its mother and its daughter or its son. For me, it's always female. So... Even if I think about the Poe, and I, from what I read and understand, Poe is visceral, it's bodily, right? We can say it's our somites or our our somatic experiences. It's the areas in us which are not chosen. They're instinctual, autonomic. And then I think, what's the mother of this metal energy? And that's the real mother, Earth's mother. And then I ask myself, what is the child of it? And that's water. And those are elements that I can look at. I can go outside and look at what happens to soil in different atmospheres. Uh, What happens to metal in different atmospheres? What happens to water? Let's say if water is such a flexible element until it freezes, And then it can become a stagger, right? You can kill with an ice stag. But we breathe water. So H2O is in the air. So this thing that is part of what helps us be can also kill us, the, the water. And when I think of earth and soil, I always say, okay, I can understand the earth because I... This Like your patient, I work in the garden. I know what happens if I, I don't give it enough sun or water or love or attention. If I don't care for it, what happens to it. So I think the more we look at Chinese medicine like an agricultural continuum that became a healing, it would be the same as healing your garden, when you come and you say, oh, there's nothing that can grow here. Oh, yeah, we can grow stuff here. Yeah, we can. So then the Paul becomes like something you feel. This is home, And when you think the in, you can feel what thinking is and caring and worrying. And when you're afraid and you know the feeling of being, you know, so frozen inside. so. Like you have ice inside your heart. Then you understand what Z is. Like from how do I build courage from fear? I have to warm it. I need to give it air. I need to give it some worms. And then again, I think then we can start uh, practicing acupuncture in a much more joyful way. Like your patient working in her garden. I don't need to think of how many needles to needle, or which needles should be young, I don't have to be here. I can look at my patient and ask myself, if she was a garden, how would we make this garden bloom? And then I also converse it, what do you think we need to do and to help you bloom? Instead of tell, how we can can we get rid of this backache you have, or your, I don't know, menstrual pain? How can we help this cycle of yours become a healing cycle that you will have all the possibilities menstrual cycles can give you?
0: You have just described a lovely self-cultivation practice of looking at the, the, the spirits of our viscera in a friendly, investigative, playful way. And, and taking that into our clinical work.
1: Told you I love Chinese medicine. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. No, I, I, I hear your love for it. it. It just oozes through. Now, bringing the polyvagal in, so this, Chinese medicine is so weird. There's things that it sees, and it sees really well, right? There's lenses that we can look through. There's ways of being that we can inhabit. You were just talking about it that allows us to help our patients. But there's certain things it doesn't see. So, for example, and this is funny to me like nerves, the nervous system. Chinese medicine doesn't really see the nervous system, not like we see it in Western medicine.
1: I don't think it sees nerves, but it sees a reaction. And that's nerves, right? What is a reaction? It's it's, this marriage between a nerve, which is. Substantial and a hormone, which is like a Wi-Fi, something that, a signal that comes from one place and reacts on other places if they have the capacity to hear the message and understand it. That's hormones, right? And nerves are like a fishing net. Uh, They're substantial. I can take a nerve and play with, I mean, I can, a nerve is a nerve, it's just uh, a string. So I don't think they had the idea of nerves separately, but I am er, sure—not I am sure—I I'm I'm so convinced they understood. I don't know if you remember. In I think it's still when chapters three it says that wind is the cause of a hundred diseases, right? And then you tell yourself, "Oh God, what did what did they mean about wind?" And then if you change the word wind to the word change then everything is there. Change is the cause of a hundred diseases, right? And then you ask yourself, what did the Chinese scholars and healers said about change? And they said, there are three ways we react to change. One is by heat. The second is by cold. And the third is by damp, right? That's the only option. And then if we look at it in and neurological lens, we can say heat is urgency, fight or flight, it's a reaction, it's outside. Cold is freeze, it's doing less, it's uh, reacting less. And damp can be either confusion, negotiation, dampening a situation. And all the combinations of Chinese medicine diagnosis are all about either cold or heat or damp or a combination. And that's it at the end point. Like if you want to be really, really simple about how to think Chinese medicine, is it hot? Is it overly active? Is it cold? Is it hypoactive? Is it certain? Or there is confusion? Is there damp? And then you get a story that can become actually not so complex if you think about how simple they thought about the nervous system, but how accurate.
0: Because they're looking at the, at the effect. They're not looking at the thing itself. They're not looking at the nerves. They're looking at the effect, downstream effect of this. I want to come back to something that you just said about the nervous system being connected to hormones. Because often enough, people think, well, my nervous system, it's just connected to my brain and the brain, you know, super smart, does things, things get wired into the brain. Yeah, there's that intermediary, there's neurotransmitters, there's hormones. I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, some years ago, I read a, I think it was called the Biology of Emotion or something like that, Candice Pert brilliant amazing researcher like back in the 80s who really was the first person to look at and identify neuro i want to say neuroendocrinology really
1: mhm exactly psycho neuroendocrinology right there is the psych the, the also the the secret the part we cannot see in our eyes or measure, but actually the part that makes things possible or impossible, even when everything is there.
0: Tell me more about that.
1: Let's, you know, if we talk about hormones, hormones are easy. For a hormone to react, you need someone to accept it, right? It's like a key and a hole in a key, in a door, right? So we can have abundant secretion of hormones, but if we have not enough receptors or receptors that are are unwilling to recognize the gifts they are being given from the body, then nothing will happen. So availability, at least for me, that's the secret of the psych that is part of this psycho-endocrinology meeting neurology, meeting, that's the meeting of where things will happen or not happen. I can have really high SSH, but if my ovaries are starting to deafen and say, oh, I'm going to the beach, girl, I'm not coming to work anymore, I will have abundant follicle-stimulating hormone just telling my body, Stimulate more and more, but my ovaries are just out of the game. They don't want to play anymore. They have other things to do in their life at the moment.
3: We
0: often hear about this with things like insulin resistance.
1: For sure, or cortisol or adrenaline.
0: Sure. And, you know, often enough, women like perimenopausal or menopausal, they'll often do some sort of hormone replacement therapy or they come in, or like, especially in the, in the perimenopausal phase. They often come in and say, oh, my hormones are all out of whack. I need more of X, Y, Z, according to my doctor. And as we're having this conversation in this moment, I am now asking myself the question of, well, okay, you got a certain amount of whatever hormone. What about the receptor? What's happening with the receptor that it's not being sensitive?
1: What is happening about you personally? in your mid-40s, late-40s, beginning of your 50s, that changes your attentiveness to certain signals your body used to give you, and maybe now you're just not willing anymore to accept them. And that's maybe something beautiful that needs to be honored. And I think the story of the perimenopause is such a bad story. I'm, I'm perimenopausal and I'm finding this change extremely hard, especially because my body is not willing to do stuff it used to do every month. I'm not willing to cook every evening anymore and that's because my body doesn't want to anymore. That's very simple. I don't want to cook anymore every evening and that's a signal from my brain through my hormones, to the change in my role in the family, in society. And that's, you know, this heritage of perimenopause that is actually the real story of perimenopause. I don't know, do you know that only us and orcas have menopause? Whales, that's the only species that have menopause.
0: Orca whales, not dolphins?
1: Nope, orca whales and humans. Only oracle whales and humans live much, much longer than the fertile years. And you ask yourself, why? Why did that happen? When actually the real story is extremely simple. Society, human society needed strong women, not to be fertile, to go gather because most of the hunting expeditions were not very successful. so. We rely, I mean, our, our survival relied on gathering. And if you have four kids, you can't gather for five people. So you need an older woman like me, who's strong, who has experience, who can do everything to go out to the woods and gather, that has a really strong, you know, stamina and courage, that I can be in the dark and come back to my tribe and bring all this abundance of food. And that's the real story of perimenopause. The fact that I am not in the small family of cooking dinner now. I'm in the big story of gathering food for my tribe.
0: There's another piece of that story that I think it's overlooked entirely too often. You have wisdom of experience. You have wisdom of life. Wisdom gain that you can't have at the age of 20 or 30 because you just need more time to gain that and to be able to interact with the children and show them.
1: But we don't own it. We have this tendency as people and especially as women not to own our experience as something that says, oh, this is me. I'm experienced. I have 47 years of experience on this earth. I'm proud to be an older woman. I love it. Let me age gracefully, not by telling me that I can dye or not dye my hair, have botox or not have botox, take hormones or not take hormones. That's, you know, small stuff. Let me grow up, age, and love it. And that's, I think, the rebellion that we can do is. People living in a society that tells us that being useful is our goal in life. I don't want to be useful. I don't want to be experienced. I want to be the older woman I am. I love it. I really, really love getting old. I'm waiting to be so much older.
0: I'm thinking about so many of the women that I've seen in my practice going through menopause or having gone through it. And now they're more invisible than they used to be, right? They're not that beautiful young woman that every man is looking at walking down the street. They're a little bit invisible. And indeed, I suspect they do have a strength, but their poor hasn't quite caught to it. Maybe their hun hasn't quite caught to. it. Maybe their shen hasn't quite caught into the strength that they have, the resources they have, the way that they are productive and contributing in a way that's very different than they did 10 years previously.
1: But are, are they them, giving themselves permission to be invisible? That's also a story. Why, why do I have to be visible all the time? Why do I need men to look at me?
0: It's a great question. That's right.
1: What does it add to my life To walk down the street and feel looked at all the time. Why can't I enjoy this transparency to be like the fly on the wall that sees everything that is not... uh, There is so much freedom in changing the narrative of, yeah, I am invisible, but wow, it's such a relief.
0: Cloak of invisibility very helpful at times, right?
1: It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful moment that I can see everything that, and I'm not under this microscope of life. I can, you know, grow my wings. I can experiment. I can play more. And I will get a lot less judgment, of course, if I'll allow myself not to listen to the judgment of uh, why are you, I don't know, playing you? It's not for your age. Why are you... Whatever, whatever is not for my age. Everything is for my age. I can do whatever I want.
0: (laughs) I, I would say one of the great benefits in aging that I have found is I care a bit less for what other people think.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, this is what menopause does to our brain. When we are hijacked from estradiol, the hormone of the estrogen of the ovaries, what estradiol does to our brains, and it does it, by the way, when we are born, we are going through something called the juvenile puberty. Uh, we are with a great huge amounts of estrogen, but because we don't have any receptors active in our womb, we don't get a cycle. We don't menstruate. These uh, receptors are only activated in the real puberty of being a teenager. But the first puberty we go through is an emotional puberty of estrogen which makes us care for others much more than we care for ourselves. Because if we won't be having this abundant amount of estrogen, we will throw our child from the door out when they cry at 3 a.m. We will kill our children. It's not a joke. Estrogen saves babies by making us Available for motherhood, but by making our priorities second to the priorities of our family.
0: And what you're saying is, a woman's brain or young girl's brain, under the influence of estrogen, will develop this capacity as a young child, which then flowers in another way with uh, with the onset of menstruation and, and possible motherhood. But as a young girl. The brain under the influence of estrogen, again, you you could think of this, there's probably the correlate for us men, our brains under the influence of testosterone as young boys, why do you think we're so dang rambunctious?
1: Exactly. You're hardwired for it. It's not your fault. It's just we live in a society that doesn't have patience to teach all genders the possibilities of other options. We also live in a society that tells boys, don't cry, men up. It tells women, uh, ask for help. Uh, You're helpless. You can't do it by yourself. So, you know, there is the question of nurture versus nature. There isn't an answer, probably. But hormones and nerves are probably where these questions meet. The places that we are hardwired. And all the options that our endocrine system gives us, some of it we take, some of it we don't take. And again, that's because of blood vessels where all this stuff moves. We can call it shen in the blood, right? For me, hormones are shen in the blood.
0: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico Needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico Needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Hormones as Shen in the blood. Okay, I like that. That sounds like something fun to play with.
1: I play with it all the time and I'll tell you not only I play with it but it also reminds me the mechanic importance of blood vessels. How important it is to breathe, to have our diaphragm open because all the blood vessels which again are the conduits of shen, the conduits of hormones. This is the roads, right? This is where the cars go. And if the road is broken, if the, if it's blocked, if it doesn't have leeway, then it doesn't matter the amount of shen or hormones we have in the blood. It won't get where it needs to get. So I think many times as practitioners, we think too much about energy and we don't think enough about structure, about the way we hold ourselves. The way we, before changing energy, we need to make this road or this irrigation system open and a smart have a smart computer of, of irrigation. Because you can have the most beautiful water in the world, but if you don't have a good irrigation system, it will never get to the soil you want to nurture.
0: I was listening recently to a fellow who was talking about uh, neidan, internal alchemy, very energetic sort of pursuit, and we often talk about energetic things with Chinese medicine, acupuncture in particular. But one of the things that he said, and, and this, this rang true for me, and I'm hearing you say it, and, and again, it rings true for me, if you don't have a healthy physical substrate to run all this software on, the software is not going to run very well yeah your spirit needs a place to live and it needs blood to flow freely through the whole thing and i, I would agree with you there is there is an aspect of structure that i think too often we're not paying attention to and and probably to our detriment and perhaps the detriment of our patients
1: absolutely yeah i think that when we meet a patient and they're on the table way before thinking about their energy constellation, I want to see their the way they hold themselves, uh, the relationship between their dual and their ren. the way, you know, what's more? Is it more front? Is it more the back? What kind of uh, holding do they have? How open are they? You can think of it in many, you, I mean, we can talk about, Yin, we can talk about Shaoyang, we can talk about every, I mean, we can make it very intellectual to speak, you know, hide Chinese medicine, but sometimes it's just plain simple. If someone is very closed up, then what we need to do is help them open, help them open possibilities, both structurally, and that will open emotional, energetical, Options. But sometimes we, because we take pulses and because we had such an amazing education that was very intellectual, we forget the body. Again, it's going back to the pole, to lung, to stomach, to organs, to relationships that are the structure and only then as you say the software the language the conversation relationships
0: this is a lot to take in and it's a lot to take in because what i think i hear you saying is there's a kind of embodiment that we as practitioners need to have in terms of understanding our medicine that that we need to feel it in ourselves. We need to recognize how it moves in us. Again, I'm going to come back to something you said in the very beginning about the poor decided. That's understanding something of these dynamics in your own physical sensate experience and psycho-emotive experience.
1: Absolutely. And
0: that is reliable. It's not an idea in the head. It's not a hypothesis. It's an experience that can be a reliable landmark. And so what I think I hear you saying is there's a kind of a cultivation that we can do with ourselves of embodying these things that are usually in our head, but there's a way of bringing it into our body. And that gives us another kind of a view.
1: For sure. And, you know, I think that our medicine also has... Gave us a clue about it, about this need for cultivation when it gave us four systems on the on the fire instead of two. Like all systems have two, right? Why does f- no no swearing here? Did they give us four attributes to fire? So they're telling us something about fire that says. There will be more exploration here, even by numbers. I'm going to tell you a secret here, just by looking at quantities. And you ask yourself, why did they give fire for areas and water only two? And then you ask yourself, how come fire has so many secrets in it, like the triple burner? the pericardium, the small intestine. Why did they give small intestine fire? Like, you know, it, it's these moments that you ask yourself, what were they thinking about? Why is fire has to do with sorting, right? Small intestine has to do with sorting. Why? How come they gave small intestine to be the partner of the heart? It doesn't make sense, right?
0: Does make sense, but it doesn't mean that we understand the sense of it until we put a little shen and a little exploration into it.
1: Exactly. It's not that it doesn't make sense. It, it it's not uh instinctual. You you'll tell yourself who's the partner of the heart? Well, well, oh, oh, that's something to explore there.
0: That's some that's right. It's a big X on a treasure map. Like what?
1: Exactly. And then when you look at the meridian, how it goes behind the heart. And it actually gives the heart this hug, and you tell yourself, Oh, I think they're giving me also some clues about this exploration through the meridian, through this community of areas and points that are on this meridian. So I can start thinking more and more about the kind of clues that I was given for this cultivation.
0: I love it when I talk to people like you, and I love Chinese medicine in particular, because so often it doesn't give pat answers. It gives really toothsome questions, like questions worth pondering on for a while, because there's not an easy answer.
1: And also I think if we talk about experience, There is this, you know, it's like a swirl or this ongoing that you keep. It's like a roundabout that you get to the same point that you already visited some time ago. And you have a new insight about it from the experience you gained, from the patients you met, from the physiology of your body changing. And then you get more aha moments, more moments that you say, Oh, okay, yeah, I get it now. About, you know, certain points, about certain areas in your body, about... If we talk about the small intestine, why would they put also small intestine 9 and 10? Why did they put two points there? Right?
0: What are your thoughts?
1: I don't have any. I'm just pondering about it in the last few weeks. Because it means something. I still don't get it. I get small intestine 11, I get small intestine 13, but for me now, small intestine nine and 10, I, I explore them, I try them, I see how they change the pulse, I try to understand uh, different um, structures that look at them, let's say, Tung uh, would look at them at Sai. Wow, okay. I, the game, I love these games. Really, I love these games. It's, you know, it's like... Uh, You look at lung six and you look at lung four and you can see that they actually touch one another when you bend your arm, right?
0: Now that you mention it.
1: Wow. Isn't it amazing? That the cheek left point meets another point there? Ooh, it has a meaning.
0: That's really interesting. So, look, we started this conversation today aiming at polyvagal, which is an interesting thing. We have spent an hour now talking around things, talking around this polyvagal thing, not describing it directly, but like taking a walk through the territory. And I love it that we end up here, not with answers, but again, like really inquisitive questions. Okay, lung six, lung four, look, you you bend up your arm, and they meet. So often in, in, in our modern society, we're looking for answers. In the tacit agreement in medicine, if someone's got a problem and we got an answer, we're going to help them with that. Often enough, we do. And so often, the process is not because we've got an answer, but because we can look at really weird questions and spend some time with it and see what it has to say and then work with that and see what happens.
1: And also that we get different answers to the same questions and vice versa.
0: And as you said too, we go around that spiral, we'll have a different answer, we'll have a different perspective. This is this is the gift of menopause. This is the gift of andropause. This is the gift of You know, in some ways being older, letting go of certain things, opening up perception to others.
1: And also allowing ourselves to know less and enjoy this uh, feeling of, uh, oh, I don't know. It's really interesting, but I have no clue. Let's explore this together. Instead of giving us us, the patients this need of, uh, I know better than you, or I can teach you, or I can tell you. More of, oh, I know shit, but I know how to ask really good questions with you. And I want to invite you to this um, dance of questions instead of answers.
0: I suspect it's not that we don't know shit. I think there, there are understandings we have. But when we get more comfortable with uncertainty, it opens up a whole new landscape.
1: Absolutely. And you know, while you were saying, yeah, we do know, but it became this knowledge that is just, you know, us. This knowledge became you. This is this uh, embodiment of your ying. I mean, we start with a lot of uh, work on our Wei Qi and we work from the Yuan Qi, but then we get a lot of ying Qi, right? And this yin Qi, at least for me, is this ability to say, I got a lot, I processed it, until it became so me that there is no separation between the knowledge and me, so I can allow myself to be open to learn more and more, because what I know, I know.
0: Well, my friend, I think that is a great place to put a pin in it for today.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for this uh, really delightful journey through, really, our being.
1: Thank you. I enjoyed this conversation tremendously.
0: We wrap experience in language, but the words at best hint at the landscape that only in part can be caught by the limits of time and conceptual thought. I went into this conversation thinking about the vagus nerve as that curiously long and winding cranial nerve that has drawn a not small amount of attention in the past number of years with the idea that it's not just a single nerve, but a group of nerves with related and interconnected functions. Beyond that, polyvagal theory holds insight into how we move between states of sympathetic arousal. And parasympathetic restoration and rest. My limited reading has me toying with the idea that this nerve, which richly interconnects our viscera, also has something to do with our unique capacity to be social creatures. What I did not expect was that in this conversation, we would talk less about polyvagal theory and instead. Enjoy an hour of experiencing the terrain of connective curiosity, rapport, and timelessness, which is indicative of the curious way. Polyvagal entrainment of our nervous system opens a world of connection. I've heard a lot of what polyvagal does, but in this conversation with Corinne, I got a sense instead of how the polyvagal is. Thanks as always for listening.